Hi, everyone, and welcome to the American Ambulance EMS Podcast. I'm Dr. Danielle Campaign, American Ambulance's Medical Director. I'm here with our fantastic co-hosts, Dr. Patil Armenian and Dr. Sajin Bakta. And we have a special guest co-host, Dr. Liliana Samano. Hello. Hi, everyone. Hi, everyone. Today, we're going to be talking about chemical burns. Well, Liliana, why don't you go ahead and tell us about yourself? We're excited to have you on the podcast today. Yeah, thank you. I'm excited to be here. Um, I'm one of the residents at UCSF Fresno in the emergency medicine program. Um, And I'm actually from Fresno. So it's really exciting to be a part of this podcast today. Thank you for having me. Great. Well, thanks for being here. Um, Why don't you kick us off and um, tell us about uh, chemical burns? Yeah. So when thinking about uh, chemical burns, only about 10% of all burn center admissions are actually due to chemical burns. Um, But the morbidity and mortality of these burns tends to be pretty high, almost as much as 30% of all burn deaths. Um, When thinking about household and all the chemicals that can cause these burns, there's over 25,000 chemicals um, that can cause skin and eye injury. And the majority of chemical injuries are due to acid and alkali chemicals. The most common depth of injury tends to be the partial thickness burn, which we'll talk about a little bit later. As far as some of the pathophysiology of chemical burns, um, first we can start off thinking about the skin and its layers. So we have a dermis and an epidermis, and the skin thickness uh, tends to vary by people's age and the location of the skin we're thinking about. So when we think about extremes of ages, like very young or very elderly patients, their skin tends to be a little bit thinner. um, And overall, skin is thicker in the palms, soles, and the upper back. The outer layer of the skin, which is called the stratum corneum, is a pretty strong barrier against many chemicals. However, the mechanism of a lot of these chemicals can lead to protein denaturation or destruction, um, and so that can allow the chemicals to penetrate the different layers of the skin. Um, When we think about how these chemicals uh, can cause skin damage, there's six mechanisms, oxidation, reduction, corrosion, protoplasmic poisons, vesicants, and desiccants. Now, those are all super fancy scientific words. We're going to pick on Patil to kind of break it down for us about what all this means, what's happening at that skin level. Yeah, I mean, just to put it in regular English, um, a lot of these processes such as oxidation and reduction are destroying energy production in cells. And so um, that's how those cells kind of, your skin cells stop working. Corrosion um, basically just cause it's almost like breakdown and irritation of the skin, whereas other compounds are either going to dry out cells, such as desiccants, they're going to dry everything out or introduce fluid in. And then you have your vesicants. Uh, what that means is blister forming compounds. So those are going to be your agents of chemical warfare that we don't talk about a lot, um, but that's going to be like your lewisite, sulfur mustard, Uh, nitrogen, mustard, all of the things that really are banned in chemical warfare but have been used on people. Basically, a lot of different ways on how you can destroy skin and the layers under it. Another simple way to kind of classify these chemicals and the damage they can do is to break them down into classes of acids, alkalis, organic solvents, and inorganic solvents. So to go a little bit further, um, acids can cause a denaturation or damage of proteins in really superficial tissues, causing something called coagulation necrosis, 
that often forms an eschar, which is kind of like a fancy word for a scab. Alkalis, on the other hand, they accept protons and they still denature proteins similar to an acid, but the kind of damage they cause is something called a liquefactive necrosis, um, which is a little bit what it sounds like. But these can allow the chemical to penetrate the skin a little bit more deeply, um, causing more damage compared to acids. And it also increases your risk of having the chemical absorbed into the body systems and blood when compared to acids. So because of that, these alkali burns are worse than acid burns because they can go through more layers of skin and injure a little bit more deeply. Um, next, organic acids, which are things like uh, gasoline or kerosene, um, these dissolve the lipid membranes um, of the skin and can disrupt proteins. And finally, inorganic solutions can directly bind to these tissues and cause the formation of salts on the skin and cause tissue injury that way. I think one of the hardest parts for EMS is to know which it is, right? Someone says X chemical spilled on me and then, you know, is our EMS professionals going to know, is this an acid, is this an alkali, like what this is? Do you have any tips or tricks from this group about how someone would tell that? I mean, I think the best tip is to just take a picture of the bottle or label. A lot of these things are going to be in the industrial setting and all workplaces by law are supposed to provide people with information on the chemicals that they're exposed to in the workplace. And so, um, so EMS professionals should know that, that if they go to any work site and somebody is exposed to something, they can actually like ask for that information. Cause really we don't know how to take care of them unless we know what it is. And you don't, we don't have to figure it out on the scene, but at least just to get some basic information, even a name uh, will help later. When thinking about the severity of a chemical injury, some of the things that uh, one thinks about are the concentration of the chemical, the degree of penetration that the chemical had into the skin. Um, we think about the mechanism of damage, and most importantly, the duration of contact that that chemical had with the skin or eyes. The pH itself of an acid or an alkali isn't always the best uh, indicator to estimate how strong this chemical is, or the extent of injury that it can cause. There's something called the titratable acid, or the alkaline reserve, which is a fancy way of saying the amount of alkaline or acid that's needed to bring the pH back to a normal physiologic range that each acid or chemical requires. And so that may be a better indicator of the potential for injury of that chemical. The amount of time to starting the dilution or the removal of the chemical agent is also really directly related to the eventual depth and degree of injury. What this basically means is the sooner that the patient can be decontaminated, meaning stripped and washed with water, the better. People who die after severe chemical burns usually have problems with renal failure, hypovolemia, or hypotension. And there is a potential for systemic toxicity if these chemicals are absorbed deeper into the skin and into the systems. So I got a question for the group, um, especially Patil. So with her toxicology background, has an expert in all this. Um, what if an EMS professional shows up on scene, they're exposed to some chemical, but they don't have any pain at all. They say, no, 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 I'm good. I don't want to go to the hospital. What are your thoughts? So these are interesting scenarios because you show up and you're like, oh, well, the person looks fine. So maybe I could just tell them to go home and everything is okay. Now, that will be the case some of the times. 
Um, but some of the times they could still be exposed to a chemical that will cause a burn or tissue injury many hours later. So, for example, when it comes to chemical warfare, sulfur mustard is actually a chemical that will cause pain many hours later, even though the damage to your skin occurs right at the time of exposure. Now, in the more real-world setting of what we would possibly see, a huge example of this is hydrofluoric acid. Now, a lot of times somebody won't come up and tell you, hey, I was exposed to hydrofluoric acid, which is HF. Uh, what they'll say is that they were cleaning machinery or using it in glass etching or cleaning tires um, or electronics manufacturing. Uh, one of my most memorable cases was someone who was cleaning the metal machinery at a car wash. Uh, and so anytime you hear a really intense cleaning agent in the industrial setting, um, hydrofluoric acid could be at play. And what it does is it causes pretty massive pain and tissue destruction, but up to 12 hours after the exposure. And the way it does this is by binding a lot of the calcium in the cells. So this can cause a lot of problems. It could even cause systemic toxicity and death. It's just a great example of how this can be delayed. So just because someone was exposed to a chemical doesn't mean that if they're painless at that time, that they're going to be okay. So for example, even the tiniest hydrofluoric acid exposure can result in excruciating tissue injury. And so they have to be just like washed and irrigated pretty thoroughly right at that time or else the damage will be done. Sajin, take us through the assessment. So of course, we're always going to stick with our ABCs to start with. And especially in these cases, we need to assess the airway very promptly. There can be visible burns to the airway, but most probably the earliest signs are going to be difficulty speaking, uh, neck pain or swelling, strider or wheezing. And if you hear these things, that should make you consider early airway management. There are also other ways breathing can be impaired, and that's if there are chemical burns to the chest. If there are full thickness burns that encircle the entire chest, you can actually create an S-scar, as we were mentioning before, and this can scar down the tissue of the ribcage and the chest wall and make it difficult for the chest wall to expand. Even if you are providing adequate oxygenation or ventilation, because the chest wall can't expand, you won't be able to breathe very well. And so sometimes we have to do emergent procedures called an escarotomy, which is cutting the top layers of the skin to allow the chest to expand. There are also chemical burns that can directly affect the face, the mouth, the neck, or the chest again, which can impede breathing and ventilation. And then on top of that, even if there's not direct contact, there can be inhalation or accidental ingestion of a chemical. Again, these can cause voice changes, changes in the secretions, either very dry or an increase in the secretions, or direct injury to the mucosa of the back of the throat, which can cause a lot of swelling and a lot of difficulty breathing. Again, this is someone you want to be very careful and very cautious with their airway. The edema can progress very quickly, and you can lose your chance to secure an airway very early. 
And I feel like these are hard cases. You know, it's the kid who found some bottle that was unmarked under the sink and drank a sip. And then I feel like as a provider, we're like, whoa, is this something totally crazy serious that their esophagus is going to, you know, liquefy? Or is this like no big deal? And I feel like these are the hardest ones. Oh, let me tell you, it's always something in a Gatorade or Coke bottle. Always. And you're like, what was it? So you just err on the side of caution, transport and treat as, you know, the worst possible scenario to... Uh, and get them the best outcomes. It's very important to get IV access as soon as possible, especially patients with large burns. Um, as we know from our burn process that we give fluids to all of our burn victims. When you lose layers of skin, you have a lot of loss of fluids um, passively. And so we want to be very aware of their circulatory status and try to get IV fluids as quickly as possible. And of course, we're going to be continuing to monitor their mental status. And once we've secured the ABCs and have an adequate assessment of their mental status, it's also important to decontaminate and to expose the patient as we were discussing earlier. That's going to really prevent ongoing exposure and injury Um, But at this time, you also want to make sure that you as the provider are also wearing appropriate PPE to prevent yourself from becoming injured or exposed to these chemicals. So again, it's most important to decontaminate, prevent further injury, but also make sure you're doing that in a safe way. To do that, you're going to remove all the patient's clothing, especially the ones that are exposed to this chemical, um, brush off any powders in the skin, and then you can begin to irrigate with water. Especially if you notice powder on the skin, it's really important to brush that off as it's dry and to not soak that with water, which can increase the amount that's absorbed in the system. And then it's also important to check the patient's eyes and again, the mucosa of the nose and the mouth to check for any mucosal injury or burns. The superficial appearance of the burns can be misleading. Initially, they can not look that significant, but again, just as with the hydrofluoric acid, they can cause significant damage internally. And then part of that assessment, I want to jump in here for a second to talk about what kind of chemical it is. I know we talked about it briefly before, but like Patil said, if you could take a picture of it or find of his industrial strength or um, like household strength, that really helps. I feel like the providers that you're bringing the patient to. The more information, the better. And if it's an unmarked bottle and you have no idea, I would say even bring that in because we can use pH paper to test the liquid inside and at least get a pH from it. So Liliana, I want to go through just a really quick review of burn size. I know we discussed this in um, thermal burns, which was podcast episode number 75. Check that out. So we're just going to do a one minute review of how to document and assess what the burn size is. Yeah, so in thinking about the burn size, uh, the most simple commonly used method to calculate this um, is the rule of nines. So essentially, um, when thinking about an adult's body size, we kind of divide everything into nines to calculate the total body surface area. For an adult, the head, um, both the front and the back, comprises 9% of the body. Each arm is 9%. The chest area is double that, 18%, as is the back, also 18%. The front of each leg is 9%, and the back is also 9%. So each individual leg totals up to 18%. And the last 1% is actually the perineum. 
Um, when thinking about children, um, because their head is proportionally larger and has a greater total body surface area compared to an adult, um, the rule of nines is a little bit modified. So their head, front and back, is 18%. The chest and the back are the same as an adult, 18% each. And the right arm and the left arm are each 9%. The legs, however, um, each leg is a total of 14%, and the perineum stays at 1%. So the big change is, is the head. Let's jump to uh, management. I know decontamination is key in the pre-hospital setting. Um, when it comes to the management of a chemical burn uh, scenario, Step one, as is always in the pre-hospital setting, is scene safety. The protocols are going to vary depending on the region, but I'm going to briefly go through our Central California EMS agency protocol for how to handle what is in essence a hazardous material incident or a hazmat incident. Now, of course, if you have just one person that was exposed to one household chemical, that's really not going to be a hazmat situation, but it's really up to you when you go to a scene to determine if it is or not. One example would be uh, we've had chemical spills, uh, for example, in a factory or at a farm, and there's many people exposed. So first recognizing that this might be a hazardous materials incident. And then if law or fire is not on scene, then we do... um, you know, we do want to get them on scene to aid um, in this situation. And if they are not on scene yet, then the first thing you can do is to move people to kind of an uphill or upwind location. And then if there's any type of powder um, on them, then they have to remove their clothing, protect from inhalation. If there's a liquid, wash off and remove clothing. So basically, you're doing this initial um, guiding people through initial self-decontamination first, and then notifying dispatch um, and and then activating the county hazmat plan. Now, if fire is on scene or you know law enforcement is on scene, then you should definitely let them know that they need to also personally decontaminate themselves, think about potential contamination, basically follow their direction first regarding scene safety, and then follow through with your county hazmat plan. And then also talking about um, skin decontamination, you know, we we talk about washing that exposed area off with lots of water. Usually that's just tap water. It could be sterile water or normal saline too. Now there is a caveat though, when we're talking about unless you're concerned for metallic sodium or lithium. So Liliana Patil Sajni just want to expand on why we don't just throw water at those. If there's concern that the patient was exposed to like a metallic um, element such as sodium or lithium, you don't want to irrigate these because if these come into contact with water, they can actually heat up or explode, um, putting your patient at super high risk for now a thermal burn in addition to a chemical burn. Um, There are some other chemicals that shouldn't be mixed with water. Um, Dr. Aminian, can you tell us about that? There's a couple other things that just pop into my mind. One of them is white phosphorus, which uh, is super rare, but highly combustible when come into contact with water. Uh, And then the other is phosphine, which could, when combined with water, can actually form phosgene. And the bad part about that is not only will the actual person exposed get sicker, but all the people around will also get sick. Now, of course, these are the rarity. And in the vast majority of situations, it's just water irrigation volume, just tap water. 
just volume, volume, volume. What are some examples of things we would see metallic or sodium in, like as just products? I think that would really have to be in like a like a battery manufacturing plant or an electronics plant. There aren't a lot of ways to get that type of elemental sodium and lithium. When we think about sodium, I think often we're thinking about sodium chloride, which is like table salt. Obviously, that's not combustible because we use it all the time. So this is elemental sodium, which is actually really hard to find. Um, and it's these are things that are really going to be in the industrial, especially electronics industrial setting. Something that might be a little bit more common than maybe the elemental sodium or lithium is actually an exothermic reaction from trying to put a basic liquid over an acid contamination. Um, so re it's really important to just irrigate with water only, something that has a neutral pH. We're not trying to neutralize the acid contamination um, with a basic solution. We don't, we want to avoid that. We don't want to do that. That can also cause a very exothermic reaction, which can cause a lot of heat and explosions. Yes. Truer words have not been spoken. Don't try a neutralization reaction. <laughs> so after decontamination, the pre-hospital chemical burn management is similar to thermal burn management. So once you've secured your ABCs, you're going to initiate fluid resuscitation. Again, if you can estimate the total body surface area, can help you determine how much fluid you'll need to give. Um, but really in the pre-hospital setting, we're just going to start IV fluids and get them hanging. And that's the most important thing. The next thing to think about is pain relief for the patient. You can always call the base hospital to ask for pain medications, especially for longer transport times. Now, the one outlier here is pain management in hydrofluoric acid burns. These are painful, not just by normal mechanisms, but also because of the calcium chelation that Patil was mentioning earlier. Often the only ways to manage pain with these hydrofluoric acid burns is to actually administer calcium, either locally via topical gels or intravenously, or actually intraarterially in the hospital setting. The next step is to protect the affected burn area. And typically we do this using a clean, dry, non-stick sheet or blanket. And then of course, we're going to transport the patient to the appropriate facility. Here in Fresno, the burn center is RMC and the regional SEMSA protocol regarding transportation is to transfer to a burn center. Now the protocol itself says patients should be transported directly to the regional burn center, bypassing other hospitals if the ETA is within two hours. And that's especially for patients with any partial thickness or full thickness burns that are more than 10%, the total body surface area, circumferential partial thickness or full thickness burns of any body part, burns to the face, hands, feet, major joints, perineum, the genitals, any electrical burns, patients with chemical burns that are greater than 10%, and then any other patient meeting trauma triage criteria. And I think just take note that the thermal burn criteria is applied to chemical burns, right? So if you have a chemical burn that's like of your face, hands, feet, major joints, I'd be I'd want them to go to a burn center too or the perineum. And the last thing we want to 
do is prevent hypothermia. Again, the skin is a protective barrier, not only for fluids, but also for retaining heat. And these patients can become hypothermic very quickly. Taking extra precautions to prevent loss of body heat during the resuscitation will be very important. So again, for the details on our burn protocol, um, refer to episode number 75 on thermal burns, and you'll find all the information right there. Yeah, the only difference with thermal burns and chemical burns is under special considerations, number five, because he talks about the chemical burns referring to the hazmat protocol that we discussed. And really, you're going to listen to that incident commander, make sure you wear your protective clothing and gloves, remove all contaminated clothing, wash with copious amounts of water, exceptions, the metallic sodium or lithium, like we talked about, do not scrub, and sterile water or normal saline is preferable, but any available water may be used. And that's the official SIMSA guideline or special considerations. Let's jump to our take-home points. We want people to remember um, one thing about this podcast on chemical burns. Liana, what do you want to remember from today? So decontamination of the skin and the eyes is really the mainstay of pre-hospital treatment. Um, If you can decrease the contact time of the chemical with the skin, you can make a big difference in that um, patient's course. Sajin. Please try to get as much information on what the chemical was and what the exposure was and how long the exposure was for. Patio. Pay attention to if there's more than one person involved or the spill of a hazardous substance, because this could be a hazmat situation. And my take point is protect yourself. Uh, make sure you're wearing the appropriate gears that you yourself are not going to get contaminated um, with the patient. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If you guys like the American Ambulance EMS podcast and you feel like this has been useful for you, please give us a five-star review on the iTunes store so that we can move up in the ratings so that uh, other uh, pre-hospital professionals can listen to us as well. Um, And we're also taking any solicitations for ideas or, or topics that you want covered, and you can email us anytime at podcast at americanambulance.com. Once again, that's podcast at americanambulance.com. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on the American Ambulance EMS podcast produced by American Ambulance in Fresno, California. The views of the guests and the hosts of this show are their own and don't necessarily reflect the views of American Ambulance or UCSF Fresno. And I'm John Mark Bergen, American Ambulance's media producer, saying thanks for joining us. Have a great shift and stay safe out there.